much charting is as bad as too little charting. And someone, anybody who believes that we contemporaneously have to fill in everything on every patient obviously doesn't know what we do for a living. And to come up with a wacky diagnosis like tennis elbow, since when does tennis elbow result in amputations? Hey, it's that time again. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, Risk Management Monthly coming to you. We have two guests this month. Now, you heard uh, Greg Moore multiple times uh, over the uh, over the 15 years we've been doing this. Uh, Greg's with us. Uh, Greg Moore's with us. And he's up in uh, Washington. Greg Henry's in Michigan. And our guest today is uh, Rachel Linder. Rachel is at the Mayo uh, Hospital ER at um in arizona in phoenix so um and i just found out that the relationship between greg moore and rachel is that uh, greg moore spent some time at the uh, mayo clinic in rochester where uh, rachel did all of her training and then came down to the hinterlands you know that mayo is taking over the country and they have these little <laughs> Uh, these little subversive uh, sectors that in Florida where the rich old people are, you know, uh, and that, they found out that there's some rich old people in Scottsdale as well. So the next thing you know, they're down there. So Rachel, welcome, welcome, welcome. Rachel is, uh, you know, you. one of these slacks, slackers, you know, she only has a MD degree and a JD degree and she has a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh, so you can understand, and she graduated out of her residency three years ago. So it's like she's packed a lot of stuff into the last five years. That's for sure. <laughs> Rachel, uh, welcome aboard, and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. This is uh, the topic of this discussion is cases where charting made the difference. And uh, Rachel, actually, this was uh, based on a presentation that you made at one of the ASAP meetings with uh, John Schufeld? Was that? Uh, yeah, it was just this year, actually. John wasn't involved in this one, but he's he's given this with me before as well and helped out. Yeah, John is um, uh, MDJD. And does he have an MBA as well? Does John? He does, yep. Yeah, he has the trifecta. Uh, John is a entrepreneur in, or emergency physician entrepreneur in, Arizona, who has just accomplished extraordinary things uh, throughout his life. Uh, he started a you know huge network of urgent care centers, sold them. He's just a serial entrepreneur. Um, so he's done some mentoring over uh, over there with uh, Rachel and thank you, John. Uh, Rachel, you want to uh, kind of set up what you're going to be doing here, and our job will be to put in pithy comments. Um, <laughs> Greg's Perfect. got lots of pithy comments. <laughs> yeah, that's that's principally my job now. As you as you get old and your uh, and, and your motor skills fall apart, you're you're set up to to do pithy comments, and so we're happy to do that with you, young lady. Let me just uh, point out the fact that we go back a long way in the medical legal business. I was looking at my uh, charts. I gave my first deposition as an expert in 1976, and um, I've, I've now finished looking at cases, but I've looked at almost 
2,000 cases in that period of time. So uh, we'll see if we have something to throw in at you. Perfect. So this was a topic that was actually given to me uh, by ASAP that I hadn't spent a ton of time thinking about, but we'd kind of gotten whiffs of it during residency. You kind of know that documentation is important, and if you do it wrong, you can get sued. But that was about the extent of my knowledge. So it was a good opportunity for me to kind of dig in and see some real cases and and put some the meat on those ideas. As I was doing this, one of the things I uncovered is that about, depending on where you look, 10 to 20% of malpractice suits involve documentation errors, which was a lot higher than what I thought. And there's a whole industry that's growing up around this. Um, just lawyers basically saying, let us look at those charts and find the errors and we'll come up with a lawsuit for you. So if you Googled this, you'd find a lot of lawyers eager to jump in in this area. In some previous work, types of documentation errors have been characterized. So you can think of it as kind of missing documentation, areas where the content is just wrong. And then a lot of cases involving mechanics that have more to do with an EHR and kind of the clunkiness of sitting on a computer. So I thought it was helpful to go through and try to find cases in each of those categories and just give folks some ideas of real world examples of how, how things went wrong. You know, Rachel, we did a, a study uh, a while back that looked at the electronic medical record and whether it's contributed to uh, lawsuits or not. And um, at that time, actually, and this, this uh, study was done by the U.S. Acute Care Solutions, who have about 90 contracts. And they looked and they found that electronic medical records were very, very infrequently involved in uh, lawsuits in terms of the... Uh, Software itself made a problem. You said right right leg and it, it said left leg or something like that. And given that that's what the, the mechanism of charting now, it appears to be uh, safer than uh, we would we would think that the that errors caused by these charting systems are difficult to show, although they generate reams and reams and reams of largely useless paper. Um, I think it, the, the danger used to be more when the charting was not kind of very, uh, where you had to follow a, a specific pathway to do charting. Go ahead. Let me just jump in for one second. Having followed cases now since 76, there are three different eras that we've gone through. The first one was there were mostly handwritten charts. Rick, when you and I started, and this may be true for Greg Moore as well, we hand wrote uh, and, and put stuff down there. But because we did have to hand write it, we tended to put down what was important. Then we shifted over into a mixed bag of uh, some typed, some not. Finally, everything went to type records and people became Shakespeare's. They were putting out stuff that there's no way they did. And I'll be happy to throw in a few of those cases where it was very clear that what, what, what appeared on the record was probably formulated in a package which jumped in there uh, or they had programmed in. Uh, there's no way they did all that history and physical examination on the patient. So it's gone, I think, in multiple directions. And I want to point out that sometimes too much charting is as bad as too little charting. 
1995, uh, Medicare, I believe, uh, came out with its quote-unquote charting guidelines, which started mandating all of this uh, X, X uh, review of systems and uh, Y review of uh, physical exam uh, functions and fa uh, family and, and social and all of those kinds of requirements to determine a level four and five. And that's where people that you and I grow, know, Greg, um, started the um, T-system. And, right, which were basically just saying we're okay. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna play the Medicare game. We're gonna come up with a chart that it, uh, you check off boxes, and um, they became millionaires over coming up with a you know chart that was was done, which was kind of clever, but it was <laughs> they they just ran with the ball, and hospitals paid for the charts and. That was it. Um, so I think that that Medicare really kind of was one of the genesis of this charting all kinds of stuff and um, and gaming the charts. Yeah, gaming the system for uh, fun and profit became a a way of life for a lot of places. When the hell did you need all that stuff? But lest we get off the subject. Well. I think it's actually on the subject. So the, you know, the idea of using templates for billing is definitely something that comes up in lawsuits. There were a number of suits I came across where uh, a physician documented, you know, normal exam removes all extremities, clearly a template exam. And it turned out the patient had an amputation or, you know, was paralyzed from previous stroke. And even if it had nothing to do with the case, it's so easy for a lawyer to look at that and say, you know, we can't trust your documentation. Clearly, you didn't care. You didn't take the time to do it. And so those templates, even if they have no effect on the case, can really be used to impugn the physician. And they're, they're definitely a danger zone. Yeah. Uh, we've, all, we've all been there. We, we've all seen that case where the patient had a blind eye, which wasn't picked up, all these other things. Uh, we finally got to the point to say, write down what you did, what you examined, but don't write down what you didn't examine because it probably has nothing to do with the case anyway. Right. And I think that's good advice. I just don't know how well you'll be able to get away with it from your the billing folks watching over your shoulder. I understand. Yeah. To Rick's point about EHR is not increasing liability. I would believe that on the whole, but I think one of the things that we're seeing is they introduce new opportunities for error that weren't there when you were doing handwriting charts. So I, I can give you a couple examples here um, that ended up in, in huge verdicts. So one of the biggest verdicts I saw was for 140 million. And basically a patient had been prescribed eight units of insulin, but that dosing was transcribed and to 80 and the patient was given 80 and became profoundly hypoglycemic, ended up dying as a result of that incident. And even though it was obviously, you know, no malicious intent on and from the provider, it was just kind of a typo, uh, you know, no mercy given by the court for that outcome with the $140 million suit. Another example, similar, an $11 million verdict, a patient was in the hospital, was supposed to be getting 1,500 milligrams of Keppra, but was only given 150 just from a computer error. And so it was given 150 over the course of a week had a major seizure, respiratory arrest, and ended up with a severe neurologic deficit. Uh, and, you know, other examples, one patient was in the emergency department, was diagnosed with hypokalemia, and they were given the discharge instructions for hyperkalemia, 
So they stopped their potassium at home and ended up dying. And another issue that I think probably we've all gotten ourselves or we've all been in the situation uh, prescribing or ordering the wrong meds on the wrong patient in the emergency department. You know, it's a lot harder to do if it's a written chart. Pretty easy to do if you have five charts open. One of the cases I looked at was a a 91-year-old was given chlorpromazine that was meant for one of the psychiatric patients that was his neighbor and had a cardiac arrest and died. So those things probably aren't going to happen in paper charts, but we're certainly at higher risk for them with uh, the EHRs. And those make up about 20% 20 of the lawsuits related to documentation. It's kind of surprising because one of the claims uh, to the value of EHRs is uh, patient safety with regards to medications and all of these software uh, stop signs that basically would alert people to that's an unusually large dose or or some other kind of red red flag plus in those cases they always kind of go to the nurses and 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 would say have you ever given 80 units of insulin ever in your entire life doesn't this doesn't this seem like a very unusual amount uh, to give so it's kind of like it, it's a double-edged sword because maybe there was a, a, a error in the record, but then the, then it was implemented by a healthcare provider. So uh, it takes two to tango. Yep. Yep. And there are multiple people adding to the records these days, putting it in here, putting it in there. How often it, that the doctor does not actually read what the nurse wrote in the record? Uh, I think that happens a lot more than we would like to think, that there there are entries made which we should have been aware of, but it was just another line in that huge chart. Right. A couple issues there that I saw come up. So one of the things you guys are referencing would be alert fatigue or alarm fatigue, where the EHR gives us the ability to, you know, theoretically see all these alerts, not make these medication errors, but we see so many that we just keep clicking by them. Yes. It, One- it happens all it happens all the time. It's like when an alarm goes off in the department, if enough of them go off, you ignore them. Right. One one of the cases we saw that was super sad was a child had been diagnosed with I think strep or something, start on augmentin seen in the emergency department, was diagnosed with an augmented allergy and uh, came back into the emergency department the next day because they still had some periorbital edema. And the provider who saw them then thought maybe it was orbital cellulitis, uh, clicked right through the alert saying they had an augmented allergy and gave them, I think, unison. And they coded and died in their parents' arms getting their unison infused. Mm, it was God. just, you know, these the alert fatigue is is real, but it's not going to protect you in court, obviously. Right. And then Greg Moore, uh, I was going to say, uh, you're up there in Washington. Do you have anything to add to this conversation here? Because I know you have a lot of experience in this, this area. Yeah. Yeah. A couple things that have jumped out at me as um, I think Rachel alluded to, you just start uh, filling it up with little clicks and, you know, it looks like voluminous and like a real chart. But if those things weren't actually done and it can be shown in court, then you have lost all credibility and you get impeached and it goes right to honesty. You know, we talked about the fake eye thing. Um, what I used to like, one thing I used to like about written charts is I would 
it was just seemed easier to read the nurse's notes. But for me, you could comment on the nurse's notes. You can still do it electronically, but I would write on the handwritten nurse's notes, thank you at the bottom of their notes. And then the nurses would love you because you took the time to read what they had to say and acknowledge it and appreciate it. I used to love written charts for that reason. I'm still working on finding out how to do that in the electronic um, chart. And another thing along the way of this early discussion that uh, I think Rachel and I are kind of on the same same board with is uh, the issue of two too much or too little documentation comes up all the time. Now, if you're a lawyer, you want too much. You want a lot of stuff there that you can go after and investigate and pick apart. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that Rachel and I feel like uh, maybe a little less is better because it gives you more wiggle room to explain yourself if you go into court. Uh, you know, you got to fill in the blanks. Well, I uh, I always remember the case where the attorney had the doc on the stand and he'd written or obviously pushed the button for this gigantic neurological examination. Um, There's no way he did all of this on somebody who had a non-neurological problem. And he started to go through with with the doctor and say, how many minutes does that take? How many seconds does that take? He got to the end of this and said, you've got almost an hour's worth of examination on the nervous system. He said the patient was only in the department for 20 minutes. How, how do you put that together? Uh, you know, I, I think jurors are smarter than we think on these things. I guess that's the danger of the macros. The, these larger-than-life exams get created you push the nac- um, uh, neuro macro and you push the uh, GI macro and you've got this extraordinarily wonderful chart, but but the next guy's got the chart that's almost identical to, to your chart. You know, it's kind of like uh, they're all they're all very similar. I, I'm going to butt in here. I'm going to butt in. Uh, uh, I'm going to mention his name because he's not alive anymore, but at Indiana University, we had a, a, an experienced guy named Dr. Shortridge, and his charts back in the day were, uh, the, they had three words on them. It was like sick, and then under progress, better, and then the third word would be discharged, and then he was ready to fill in the blanks later. His charts were usually three words. That was back in the day, and uh, he was fast, and uh, the patients were, they were, uh, you know, discharge quickly. And it was called, uh, when he did discharge him, they tell the patients you've been short ridged. <laughs> well, you know, you know, we all saw that and we've all watched that. And I had one great guy who went on into general surgery, um, and then thoracic surgery. And when he would write a chart, like a laceration, uh, he'd say, everything moves wound two inches stitched. That was it. <laughs> I mean, there were no comments about anything else. And he said, I don't need it. I said, that's all I have to remember. Uh, and, you know, all of these things, hey, I put 4-0 uh, this and 6-0 that and all that. It says none of that ever makes any difference to the patient. And he was at, he was right. He said, we write down too much crap. And you know what? I as I age, I'm thinking he was probably right about that. Although uh, I think uh, 
we're going to find out that that can cost you some money now. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're in a weird place where the charts are used for so many different purposes. So uh, obviously to communicate to yourself and other providers, but also for billing and also for the patients, you know, the, the Cures Act where patients can now get their, their medical records on their smartphone in real time uh, starts, it goes into effect in April. So, you know, we're going to be balancing multiple purposes like never before. So I think that adds to the challenge of trying to decide how much to put in and how little and who you're communicating with. Yes, I wasn't aware of that. And uh, patients can get their medical records. Um, uh, well, can't they get their medical records now just by requesting so they, them? They can under HIPAA, but it's real clunky. And sometimes it's not even, you know, there's fees associated with it. So they might be able to get them, but it might take them a month or two. Whereas now it's it's almost in real time unless you kind of opt out of that, which you're um, discouraged from doing. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of made to improve what HIPAA and some other acts had done along the way because patients still felt like it, it wasn't accessible enough. So starting in April, they're going to be even more easily accessible. One of the ideas you guys touched on is looking at other people's notes in the chart. And I just wanted to point out that was an area that we saw a lot of liability risk in a lot of cases uh, that involved, say, a resident note or a triage nurse note that wasn't acknowledged or was maybe um, believed in court more so than the physician's note. I'll just give you a couple examples. So in one of them, a man came in after he was in a car accident and he complained to the triage nurse of neck pain. But then when the physician saw him, he was complaining of only a headache and some lower back pain. The exam for the physician was, you know, no neck pain, no cervical midline tenderness. And so the the physician ended up getting, uh, I think, a head CT and x-rays of his thoracic spine, which were normal. And patient went home, came back and they, their arm was paralyzed. And it turned out they did have a, a cervical fracture. And the you know physician tried to say he didn't have any neck pain. There was no indication to do this, but right there in the nurse triage note, it, it said neck pain. And so he ended up with a $9 million verdict for that. Uh, yeah. we, so we always wonder what to do when there's a disagreement. And the first thing you must do is acknowledge that there's a disagreement. You don't have to agree, but you could say nursing note appreciated, which is another way of saying nursing note, not what I wanted it to say, and (laughs) I didn't appreciate it, but I did notice it. So if another healthcare professional makes an observation I think you're you're pretty much stuck with at least ruling it out, taking a look and seeing. And uh, very frequently, I would go back when somebody wrote something down on the chart and say, I don't see this. Take me back. Show me where you see it. And at least that's honest, uh, because otherwise you just can't say that they didn't see something if they did they did you've got to you've got to answer the question yeah i think that's good advice in that situation i'm uh i'm a kind of what i'm finding as i get further on in my career is uh you know the shared decision making kind of stuff i just i just talk to patients a lot so like in this instance if i saw the nurse say that i'd go back and say hey the nurse mentioned you have neck pain. Is that true or not? And uh, if if it's not true, then I would document that you know patient asked no neck pain. Um, 
And the other thing, when Greg was talking about, you know, putting these 5,000 word uh, laceration notes in, um, you know, I will often put uh, laceration repaired in customary fashion. And, uh, you know, in court, they will allow you to elaborate. This is what I always do, you know, and, and it's accepted uh, in the court. Um, but along the way, I will tell the patient, hey, I'm cleaning your wound now. I'm washing it out so it doesn't get infected. And and I got these gloves on so it doesn't get infected. But but then I don't write down, you know, irrigated with 500 cc sterile gloves put on, uh, you know, kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, an important part of the uh, of the show that you. Uh, yeah, I, I used to do that, too. And, you know, the idea of thoroughly. You know, you got to use these adjectives. I'm now thoroughly cleaning your wound with this uh, antiseptic. And it doesn't hurt if you splash a little bit on their face to know that you're really doing a really, really good job. The stuff is flying all over the place, you know. That's right. If if a little spills on their on their silk tie, uh, at least at least they know you tried. Right. I was going to give one more example of a, a triage nurse note conflicting just because I think it, it scares me a little bit. And is one of the things I think is worth remembering from this. So in this case, it was a Massachusetts case from 2006, but a patient went into the emergency department, uh, with some chest pain and the ER physician saw the patient, you know, couldn't really figure out what was going on, but admitted him to the hospital because his pain was difficult to control. And he ended up about 24 hours into his stay uh, going into hemorrhagic shock because he had kind of a bizarre chest wall hemorrhage that wasn't diagnosed until he was hospitalized. Went to hemorrhagic shock, he died. The emergency physician was named on the case with the idea that, you know, he missed the diagnosis. If he'd picked it up earlier, this patient wouldn't have died. And he tried to argue, you know, the patient, this patient didn't even look ill, but the nurse triage note had described the patient at triage as cool, moist, and mottled. And so that was basically used to say, you know, ER physician, you're lying. Obviously, the patient looked bad. Look at what the nurse said. And so even when it's kind of the nurse making a subjective call in court, that's going to be used as kind of strong evidence to whatever that lawyer wants it to be. Well, I think it's one of the reasons that um, acknowledging the nursing notes, which used to be very easy to do uh, in written charts or even dictated charts to acknowledge the nursing notes, I think that um, and 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 have the records actually where you can read them because there was a time when, and I don't think this is uh, do, doable now, but there was a time when people would do their charting later. Uh, the nurses would do their charts at the end of their shift kind of thing and and, and God knows what they would write because you, you would never see it. It was like if you didn't see the notes in the ER, the nurses note in the ER, you would see them at the deposition kind of thing. Right. Um, because you were blindsided and you didn't know you were being blindsided. And this I hate to think, Rick, about how many charts I stacked up on an afternoon shift. You'd finish at midnight. By two o'clock in the morning, you're still dictating or filling in those charts. Um, I know they all weren't perfect. But, oh, my God, uh, the, the number of charts which were done that way. And someone, anybody who believes that we contemporaneously have to fill in everything on every patient obviously doesn't know what we do for a living because it would never work. Rachel, at where you are, can you um, 
stack up your um, dictations and the like to after the shift is over kind of thing? Because you hear people talking all the time about this time that they spend after their shift documenting. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't say it's the preferred practice, but there are certainly folks who are are do all their charts at the end. I, that's not atypical yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a dangerous way to do it because obviously you're 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 not going to remember all the things that you really needed to remember, and yeah. you're there's the opportunity to again create charts that are larger than life. Yes, well, oh, but all of us on the call will admit we have gone back and had to clean up our charts at the end of the shift. And it's, it, it's just, it's part of reality when you're, when you, all of a sudden eight people show up who need to be seen. Although, you know, people came with an answer for that when they came up with scribes, you know, and that scribes must've started, I don't know, 15 years ago. When, yeah. Um, 20. Yeah. To, to, to facilitate physician work. And it was like, it was an, it was a gift from the gods to have a scribe because not only did they help you in their charting, they helped you on your examination of some patients. They, they served as, um, chaperones. And I think that there are still, um, people, you know, I don't think the scribe thing has really kind of gone away uh, necessarily, but, um, now with the electronic medical record, uh, it makes it, I think a little bit more difficult. Rachel, do they have scribes at Mayo? Uh, not at Mayo, Arizona. We, we did a Mayo Rochester and I think people feel, I think, uh, people have different attitudes about them. You know, a great scribe is great, but sometimes they don't have the clinical background to filter out information that you would. Like if you ask about chest pain and they say, oh yeah, but I always have chest pain, you know, in, in your head, you're going to log that as no chest pain, but a, you know, a junior <laughs> scribe might say, you know, yes, constant chest pain. And that, that can really get you in trouble in the same way the, you know, not looking at a nurse triage note can. And I'll throw in residents too. If you're not really reviewing the residence notes, it's just all of the things you're basically signing off on scribes, nurses, and residents. And if you're not reviewing those, they can come back to bite you pretty easily. Yep. Yeah, give us some other uh, horrible examples of, of, <laughs> of people screwing up. Some of these uh, uh, awards are right, 114 million. And who, what human being is worth 114 million dollars? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think people get frustrated with technology, and and I think if you try to put the blame on technology, courts or juries can often come right back in you and, and say, nice try. This is your fault. You know, they don't, they don't want to put the blame somewhere else. Um, all right. Another example of people screwing up, this one's a little bit different, but I think is worth thinking about because a lot of folks are working with, uh, APPs and this had to do with that. So in this case, um, a man came in after his arm was pinched in a ladder. And so he came in with arm swelling. He was seen by a nurse practitioner in kind of the fast track area of the ER but the triage note from the nurse wrote arm swelling. The nurse practitioner didn't note any swelling. Uh, sent him home with, diagnosed him with tennis elbow. Sent him home with narcotics. And the physician didn't even know the patient was there, never saw the patient. And patient came back with compartment syndrome that night, had to have his arm amputated. Ooh. And the court was pretty adamant that the fact that the triage nurse note conflicted with the NP note put the onus on the physician to go see that patient. 
you know, even though they don't have to supervise every patient, the fact that those two conflicted meant that the physician didn't fulfill their duty in this case. And so, you know, not only do you need to know what the triage notes say, you need to know if they're conflicting with the, the people you're kind of loosely supervising. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a pretty scary case, actually, um, because uh, it, w- it, it appears to be rather relatively rather straightforward. And to come up with a wacky diagnosis like tennis elbow, you know, since when does tennis elbow result <laughs> in amputations, you know? It's right. like, my goodness. Um, I guess that br- gets into a broader topic about uh, people who are uh, working with us who uh, may not have as much skill at this as we would like um, and the risk associated with that. But that's a kind of, then a, another subject. Yeah, that's uh, another hour. But I have a couple hundred <laughs> cases cataloged that we could talk about at some point. A couple hundred? Yes, really? sir. Um, but as far as this one, we kind of skipped over the major category that that I kind of labeled as insufficient documentation. So places where you're kind of in a sticky clinical situation and there there just wasn't enough documented to protect you in the case of a bad outcome. So there are a lot of things I would put in this this category. And so things like shared decision-making or informed consent conversations, patients who are leaving AMA, uh, providing complete discharge instructions or referral instructions, patients who are declining care, having a chaperone present, uh, any attempts to follow up with the patient on labs or results that came in after they left, consultations out of the ED, and you know, return precautions. There are cases on each one of those and many of them where I think the physician did everything right, but they didn't document it, so there was no proof. And that's going to get interpreted as, you know, that, that they didn't meet their duty pretty often. No, I, I went through all those cases over the years. Uh, and I'll tell you a quick note or who was in the room, the family member who heard the discussion, some of those things actually are wonderful to help save you. Um, you know, I, you know, uh, it's not uncommon to hear that wife say, well, he never listens to the doctor or he never does this or that. So you want her in there and the name of the person who was also heard the discussion because it's in these discussions where you actually convey to the patient how they need to follow up. Yeah. I mean, I'd be interested in, uh, some ex- some examples, if you have them, Rachel, of those kind of things. So the follow-up and discharge? Yeah, for all, sure. All, the, all of those categories, yeah. All right. So here's an example of a, a discharge or follow-up. In this uh, patient, it was an uh, emergency department patient was admitted to the hospital, I believe, with an infected kidney stone. They had a stent placed, were on antibiotics, were discharged from the hospital, and they they just left. They left their stent in place. They ended up with severe pilo, had to have a nephrectomy and they never, cause they never had their stent removed. And they said, nobody told me I need to have my stent removed. And the hospital said, well, of course we told you that, you know, we do this day in and day out. We always tell you, but it wasn't documented. And they ended up settling with this person for a million dollars because there was, there was no documentation of those discharge or follow-up instructions. Another example. Greg, Greg that sounds like your case. <laughs> yeah, 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 unfortunately. Uh, this actually, um, 
who, when you've got multiple attendings involved, I mean, obviously, if they were admitted to the hospital with a kidney stone, there's a urologist in charge of the case somewhere, right? I mean, right. So, somebody had to actually let this patient go home. Emergency doctors rarely discharge home in patients who have had a kidney stone. Somebody came around on rounds and said, okay, I'm going to pull that stint out of you in two days or three days, whatever it is. Um, that This is the kind of thing we've got to get to the bottom of because emergency docs rarely are in charge of sending those patients home. Right. I think it just goes to the point that you know, whatever discussions you have with the patient, from the court's point of view, they didn't happen unless they're documented. Right. Uh, the next one is not an emergency department case, but I think also should strike fear into the hearts of emergency department physicians. And th this was kind of an error in communicating the importance of a referral. So in this case, a baby was born prematurely. They had a retinopathy of prematurity. When they were discharged, they were told they needed to follow up with a certain you know, ophthalmologist within a week. And they were referred to that particular ophthalmologist. When the, the patient's mom called to schedule that appointment, they were told, oh, we're no longer, you know, seeing infants anymore. And so you have to follow up with some other one. So she made an appointment. It happened to be a month out. She went there. By the time she got there, her baby was blind. And, you know, she basically said, nobody told me, you know, they told me I had to follow up, but they didn't have, they didn't tell me I had to be mm -hmm. within a week. They didn't communicate yes. the importance of that. And that was about a $10 million verdict for her. Yeah, th wow. this to me should never have happened if the doc taking care of the patient, if you actually care, you're going to talk to somebody on the phone who's who's going to, you're going to get this thing involved to say, here, call this office and see what they say. I don't like that. I mean, when it's this important, uh, I would think the emergency doc ought to have a conversation with the ophthalmologist and there's when he ought to learn that he's no longer seeing infants of a certain age and that sort of stuff but you can't blame it on the parent to to not know how your system works and how you get into care uh, so it's, it's up to us to do that so uh i mean the cold hard reality of the world is uh even when you get people specific follow up there's a a wallet biopsy later and they get shut down um so a lot of times you realize hey you're trying to hook them in uh go see an orthopedist or even go see dr bones the one that i called uh and it and it doesn't happen so one thing i tend to do on my charts is just say you know, if you can't get this follow up, just come back, come back right away and let me get involved again. Uh, I can't leave that caveat. And if everything goes bad and it all falls apart, at least on your chart to a jury, it says, you know, he said he's not abandoning them. Come back. I'll help you again if you need it. And that looks good in court. Yeah, it, I, but I think it's also important uh, incumbent upon the emergency physician to occasionally have a conversation, a phone conversation with some of these guys and say, look, I'm sending them to you now. You're going to see them, right? So sometimes we, we aren't honest enough with each other face to face about what they're going to do. If their office isn't going to see somebody, I want to know it now so I can get them the care they need.
although in my experience, they don't uh, necessarily ask what kind of insurance uh, people have, and uh, and they there are opportunities for them to be turned away by the um, the uh, people who make appointments because they don't accept that insurance or we're not taking Medicaid anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So there are the opportunities to fall in the cracks. And I, I, I am a big, big believer to tell people, listen, if you're having any further problems with this uh, uh, in any way, we are here 24 seven, come back and, um, you need to be the safety net. You just can't let them out there on their own, floundering around trying to find a doctor. Yep. That's I, not good. I think what these cases illustrate is it's great to tell them that, but you've got to write it down too, or you're still going to be at risk here. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. One of the areas that I found just a ton of cases that uh, I was a bit surprised by was informed consent documentation. You know, it's one of the areas that I think we do document pretty rigorously. We kind of have our standard informed consent protocols and we sit down and, and go through the form with the patient. But I was surprised to see how many times that form was uh, kind of ignored by the court. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples of that. So one of them, it was uh, inpatient, but you could extrapolate this to the ED pretty easily. The patient had consented to a procedure for a central venous line. And during the procedure, the cardiologist doing it determined that he actually needed a swan GANS. And so he converted, used a swan GANS. There was some complication with the procedure and the patient died. And the family went back and sued and said he never consented to the swan GANS. And, you know, the, the physician tried to argue, uh, you know, yes, he did. It's right here. That's a type of central line. And the hospital settled out of this privately, but the physician went to trial because he felt like he was right there. This was a ridiculous case. And the, he ended up with a million dollar verdict against him for Ooh. converting to a different type of, of central line. So, you know, the, how specific the informed consent needs to be surprised me. And I think it's something to keep in mind. Then there was another example. Again, this one was in a, a surgical setting, but I think could be extrapolated to ED where a patient had consented to, it was a cosmetic breast surgery. And she signed an informed consent acknowledging that one of the risks of this was some, you know, cosmetic issue with her healing. And sure enough, she went on and had that cosmetic issue and she sued for it. And the, the surgeon in the hospital went back and said, look, you signed this form saying you knew that was an issue and, you know, you consented to this anyway. But she said, well, I didn't I wasn't given the consent form until you were essentially wheeling me into the OR. I didn't really have time to think about it. So it's not valid. And. The hospital argued, you know, that's never how we do it, but there was no date or time on it. And so the court just basically had to believe her. And she had a three and a half million dollar verdict for getting a complication that she consented to because there was no time stamp on it. So wow. cases, cases like that have made me think long and hard about how sufficient that kind of template and form consent paper is. Three and a half million for a breast. <laughs> It's pretty substantial. That's it's 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 huge. I, that I, must it must. It's there's got to be some other story here that goes with this because that just doesn't seem right. By the way, informed consent is is not the only problem. Informed refusal is even more important. We have consent, and we have informed refusal. I mean, anytime you're going to put a patient through something, 
better have a family member available, somebody who speaks the language, who's fluent, who can carry on the discussion. All of these things are important so that there really is a chance to communicate to the family as well as to the patient what could happen here. I, yeah, I got a few things uh, um, I'll, I'll pipe in here. I, 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 Rachel, I just think the case of the time and the date is um, amazing. I mean, I just right there, I, I focused on that case and learned from that. I mean, it's like signature, 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 but to realize that the time and date could be the key factor is kind of humbling and uh, practice changing for me a little bit. But um, as far as forms, consent forms, um, courts have said that these consent forms, many states will say they kind of don't matter. They don't prove that, that the patient was told that stuff. They don't prove that they were told that stuff. They prove that uh, by the signature that a discussion took place, but the signature doesn't just prove that every word on that form was read and discussed and talked about. Um, so you gotta you gotta be careful thinking that just these uh, blank signing forms, it's all done. That means everything there I'm protected from. Um, some states, like I know the state I'm in, Washington. They, you know, Rachel could talk about it too, but there's the thing called the burden of proof. Who has to prove what's going on here? And Washington said, if there is a signed consent form, the patient has to prove that that wasn't said or talked about. It shifts the burden of proof to the patient. A lot of states, the doctor has to prove that he said all that stuff. But Washington says, if the form signed, burden of proof goes to the patient patient has to prove that he didn't tell them that that's kind of a very big uh you know bar to jump over i think one of the other things that's worth knowing about informed consent is that it's not a uniform requirement so if you practice at multiple sites you may have to get informed consent before certain procedures at one site and not at another and it's a combination of some joint commission requirements, which are fairly standard, but then institutional requirements too. So if you work at an institution where you have to get an informed consent before every lack repair and you don't do it, that's certainly going to be used against you in court if something goes wrong. And so just being aware of your local requirements for when you need to get informed consent, recognizing that it's not standard, I think is worth your time. And then, and, and then, like, one example I would raise is, like, lumbar puncture. Do you guys do consent forms for lumbar punctures? Uh, I don't know. I tend to just document that we talked about it. There's a good article, if anyone wants to, uh, to Google. The author's Dr. Vincent. It's on lumbar punctures. And uh, found that, you know, even though it was institutionally a policy, uh, a significant percentage of physicians did not do formal informed consent on lumbar punctures. Yeah, I think that uh, we should try to eliminate as many of those procedural consents as possible. Um, I remember when our insurance company basically said we'd like to have more of them, and uh, I think that I think that it's better, frankly, if you don't, because I think you can get. Um, boxed into a corner if there's a, a consent form required for lumbar puncture or for a central uh, catheter or, or something like a IND or a laceration or anything like that. I think that there's um, 
I think there's a, an implied consent, and I think that's the the rule in the emergency department that if you come in with a lacerated arm, you're expecting us to repair the laceration. That if you and if we and <clears throat> think you have a meningitis, that that's uh, part of part of the um, normal procedures. And so I think the idea of ratcheting down to forms for this and forms for that is is you know a, fundamentally a bad idea. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to change the world, but yeah, I, I just don't think you're going to change it right now, Rick. And the mo- the biggest problem within uh, informed consent is nobody actually gets it, or nobody else in the family heard it, or nobody understood what was being said at the time. If we put enough medical ease into the discussion, nobody knows what we're doing, and I th- I think that. Uh, I think that people who just talk like people to the patients have very little problem with this. You mentioned an important word, uh, Greg, and that is understanding. And if you go back and look at the history of informed consent in all the major legal cases back in time, they they focused on the, the word understanding. Right. Uh, the patient has to understand. And so on my charts, that's the key thing. I'll say we discussed this. They seem to understand. I write that statement on the chart. That's very, very kind of a legally based word. And I think if you wanted to be even more protective in some of these high-risk conversations, you would document not just understanding, but capacity, which is really you know, the ability of that patient to make a decision in that context. Um, you know, understanding being one of the elements of capacity. I actually think, uh, I don't want to talk a lot about capacity, but I think it's worth having a little template about how you assess somebody's capacity for a situation so that you're hitting on all the elements. They understood, they were able to express a choice, they appreciated the risks associated with it, and they had, you know, they had logical reasoning for their choice. It's not something I have even memorized, but it's it's kind of the expectation if somebody is declining care or leaving against medical advice that you've done this assessment of capacity, which is a, a bit more than understanding. And I think, again, for high-risk situations, it's worth putting a couple sentences in your note to acknowledge that that you, look, you thought about that. Absolutely. I, capacity is everything. If you don't think the patient has capacity, you can hold them down. You can strap them down. You can do whatever you need to do if you think they cannot act in their own self-interest. And in emergency departments, we do things like that all the time. I I mean, I don't think things have changed that much in the last couple of years since I was doing it that uh, pretty much we would have people in in tied and leathers until, until their drugs wore off. Uh, did they give us permission? Well, by showing up and being crazy at that time, yes, they've given us permission to act in their own, uh, best interest. Um, but, but I think emergency docs are probably better at assessing the patient's capacity. Can they participate? Do they understand what's going on? Because we have to do that every day. I, I can't think of a day as a, as a practicing ER doc, I didn't have to ask those questions. I saw fewer physicians getting in trouble for d- 
determining that a patient didn't have capacity and then acting in their best interest, that wasn't very common. But what I did see is letting patients make decisions for themselves with the assumption that they had the capacity to do so. And that patient later turning around or that patient's family and saying, you know, this patient should have not have been allowed to decline this test or not should not have been allowed to leave because they didn't have the capacity. And it's after the fact. And if you don't have it documented in real time, it's, you know, very much a he said, she said for the court or the jury. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and believe me, the average person who sits on a jury thinks that a doctor or the hospital ought to be acting in the best interests of the patient. And they know that some patients are not, uh, do not have full compass mentis when they're functioning in the department. I, I, I just think that that's, that's the nature of our business. We're not in the elective healthcare business. Hey, Rachel, do you have any, I don't, I'm just curious if you had any like real life examples of that or, or AMA things that went wrong or. Of course I have a bunch. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I'll start with one. Uh, these are pretty straightforward, but basically a patient came in symptoms concerning for ACS or MI, you know, chest pain. They ended up leaving halfway through their workup. The physician made them sign an AMA form and then, you know, asked them to follow up with the cardiologist. The patient signed the form, acknowledged the risks, uh, went home and died of a fatal MI. And, you know, the family subsequently sued and said, you shouldn't have let him go. I don't believe there was any discussion of capacity in the chart. And basically it went to jury and that there was a $5.4 million verdict, but the jury found that the, the physician was only halfway responsible so only 2.7 million and the and the patient was halfway responsible because of that AMA form which i just found fascinating that you know that that's how they viewed the AMA form is it was still kind of equal responsibility for both parties hmm. uh, another example again pretty straightforward a man came in with symptoms concerning for a subarachnoid he declined i believe his lp signed an AMA form uh left and then several days later died of a fatal aneurysm rupture. And again, despite the AMA form is a $9 million verdict against the, the physician in the hospital in that case, with the argument that, you know, the AMA form itself doesn't really prove that the physician really tried to make them stay. You know, it, it's pretty minimal and, you know, didn't convince the, the jury or the court that anybody was really trying to, you know, convince the patient to do the right thing here. And that's why if you have a situation like that, um, I always refer, refer to it as your final exam in med school. Somebody has to be able to pick up that chart and know what you said, what you told them, no euphemisms, and what you wanted to get accomplished. Uh, because really that's what we're talking about here. Your your they've hired you, the patient has retained you to act in their best interest. So act like that. Right. So a generic form saying, I've been told of the risks and benefits and understand that, you know, the risks include death. That's just not going to cut it for court when they're, you know, watching, looking at a, the family of a 40 year old who died, you know, that, that AMA form is not going to cut it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the best witness you should have in that case is the family members who saw you try and get a patient to stay. 
Absolutely. I, I think too often, you know, the, these people who leave AMA tend to be fairly difficult patients. And sometimes when we leave, there is this sense of relief, like, okay, it's their decision. They left, but the opposite should really be true. We should be spending a lot more time with those patients, you know, talking to their family as you're suggesting. Exactly. They, th- those are the difficult cases when everybody agrees, no problem. Uh, it's when we don't agree that we've got We've, we've got serious problem. And, and particularly when the kids have, uh, you know, the uh, 20-year-old children have brought in their father or their mother and say, this person isn't right. You know what? Pay attention to that because yep. there's, there's something going on here. We also have to create the environment where a patient who leaves AMA um, understands that the hospital and the physicians are still uh, acting on their behalf and say, listen, if, if, you, if you feel that you you want to change your mind, you know, you're welcome back here at any time so that it's not an issue where the person's his pride keeps them from coming back because uh, you've made it an adversarial situation. Um, yeah. Exactly. So I, Never get into the, the name calling or getting into this idea that, well, damned uh, on you if something bad happens. You know what? We're open. We're here all the time. You know, come on back. We'll take another look at you. Because uh, it, there's no reason to piss them off for no reason. And they'll feel bad enough when they come back again. I, th- I think that's absolutely important. We're not there to decide who is and is not going to get medical care. Uh, we want to help you get it. And, and if we can, terrific. And the idea, I think, too, is to help them the best you can. So if they're leaving and you needed really to IND that, but they don't want it, you can say, okay, you know, do some hot soaks. Here's some antibiotics. Um, and uh, if, if that, if that doesn't work, then, then come back or your chest pain. Okay. We're going to give you, here's some nitro. Here's the beta blocker here. Here's, I'm going to do the best I can for you within the constraints that you have uh, created. But if it's not working out, please come back so that, um, you're not just wiping your hands and say, okay, you're on goodbye. See you around. Uh, Absolutely. Kind of yeah. You know, over four, uh, almost 40 years of doing this. Uh, I had a lot of patients who you didn't initially get them all the way on the initial visit, but you got them to do half of it or three quarters of it or made sure that you were still open. But what you don't want to do is cut off the communication. And number two, uh, if they are sick, genuinely sick, you want them coming back to you. I don't want them going someplace else. Yeah, it's not my way or the highway kind no. of thing. I remember a case I had in Indiana. Uh, this guy had a fight bite, and he, it was horribly infected, and he needed to go to the OR, needed to be admitted to the hospital. Uh, but he was from Kentucky, and um, you know he had some court appearance thing or child custody thing. So he left AMA. He said, I'll sign the form. You know, I'm, I'm going. There's nothing you can do. And uh, he went to grab the pen and I said, listen, can you sign it with your left hand? Because you're going to lose your right hand. So you might as well start practicing now. (laughs) (laughs) Good line. I like that. So just to echo it, what you guys are saying about kind of making making them feel welcome to come back. 
that was definitely one of the themes that comes up in these AMA cases is the, the patient would say, I didn't, I didn't feel like I could come back. And so it's great to say it. Yes, you should say it, but you've got to document it too. Cause one of the things, it doesn't really matter what you're saying to that patient. If the patient dies, that's the family that's going to be looking back through the chart and all right, they're going to create the story if it's not written there. Yeah. The other thing is, I, I think that emergency docs fall into various groups as to how free they are with letting the patient, you know, do what they want. I was not one of those guys. There was the, there was a reason you weren't going to do what I was not going to do. I wanted to know about it and I wanted to discuss it because uh, there's a reason why I'm acting in their defense. Um I, I think that we sometimes pretend and we say, well, they can do what they want. They can leave if they want. You know, I, I don't want to be that casual. If I think that I know what the care is they ought to have, you got to tell them and involve their family if they're there. Involve somebody else if you can. You know, I, you've seen people who uh, they wouldn't stay because they got to go uh, feed the cat. And right. But the fact is that th that is the that is they live with this cat that's the closest relative that they have kind of thing and it's important yeah. and it's like can you help them out in some way so that they 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 can get the cat fed and 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 while you they stay at the hospital is there somebody you can call can you facilitate that at all um it because you know those as as an example those of us who have pets you know some of our value our pets more than our family and appropriately and some so. of us have a perfect right to, uh, if, if you know all my family. I mean, it's perfectly fine. I think that uh, I always would say, you know, I've got somebody from the Humane Society. I can get this one or that one to, to take care of your animal or take care of your this or that. I once had a guy said he said he's not coming in because he had a kid who got off the bus in a tough area in, Det in Detroit. Uh, and, and I said, can you give us their name and the bus number and all like that? We sent out the Detroit police to pick up his kid. And, you know, they, the police work with us all the time. They know us very well. And that he was willing to do. And by the way, four hours later, the guy had finished his huge MI. Uh, you know, if you'd let him go out to, to get his kid He'd have died of his MI, and the kid wouldn't have gotten picked up. I I, I recently uh, I recently saw a case where a doctor tried to fix things on his chart later, and uh, it didn't go well. But I, I I didn't know. Do you have Have you seen any of that, uh, Doctor Linder? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there are a ton of cases out there about physicians who changed the documentation after the fact to try to protect themselves. And, you know, prior to the widespread use of EHRs, there was this whole industry out there of, I believe they were called uh, for like documentation forensic analysts. So they were basically handwriting experts who are looking to see, did you use the same color font? And was it the same slant, you know, for editing handwritten charts? And their jobs have gotten a lot easier now because these EHRs record essentially everything you do, you know, how long you're in each section of the chart, your initial version of notes, every version thereafter, it's really, it's really recording every single step, but still some people go in and try to change things later. And it essentially 
never works out for them because it's so easy to track down. So the rule, the rule is never after the fact doctor the chart. And I, th- I think we, we should stick with that. You know, doctor your patients, never doctor the chart. Right. So some of the reasons for that, too, besides that you're going to get caught, I, you know, so you lose your credibility in court, but in a number of states, you can also lose your licensure for doing that. And a number of insurance malpractice coverage policies have a clause in there that if you're caught doctoring the chart, you're not going to be covered by that insurance anymore. And in some states, even those that have caps on punitive damages, those caps don't hold if you altered the chart and committed fraud in that way. So, so many reasons not to do it. And again, you're going to get caught. Happy to give you some examples too. Bring them on. Okay. So I'll give you, I have three here. So one of them, uh, a five week old was brought into the emergency department with a fever and they were brought in three times over the course of a day. And finally on the third time they were tapped, had bacterial meningitis, did poorly, ended up with a number of permanent neurologic deficits. And the same provider saw them all three times. And so had documented each visit, but basically went back afterwards to try to minimize how sick the kid looked, their temperature, you know, in the first two visits. So, you know, it didn't seem like he should have tapped him earlier. And he was obviously caught for that. And he had a $20 million verdict against him. Mm. And a lot of that was just because it was so, you know, obviously he was trying to cover up something. Another example, a 21-month-old was admitted to the hospital and with was just vomiting and dehydration. At some point, somebody had written that the patient had bilious vomiting, but nobody image the patient or followed up on it. And he ended up having an incarcerated hernia and died from it. And the provider went back in the chart and tried to delete the bilious vomiting part, just the word bilious, uh, thinking that that would have, you know, made it obvious they should have imaged him sooner. And they ended up with about a $4 million verdict against him. And it's essentially an automatic verdict against the physician or providers if you're altering the chart like that. Right. Uh, One last one, which is almost funny because it was so poorly done. But so a primary care provider had been seeing a patient for intermittent abdominal pain and it, it, the patient eventually got admitted to the hospital diagnosed with a gallstone pancreatitis. And so, you know, sued this primary care provider for missing it. And at the time of the lawsuit, the, the plaintiff's lawyer asked for all of the medical records. And so they were given to them by the primary care provider's office and they took the case to trial. And when they got in trial, the primary care provider and it blew up a big, um, you know, magnified a big section of the patient's chart to show it to the jury in trial, showing, you know, this, these were the complaints. They weren't consistent with gallstone pancreatitis. But the lawyer was able to go back and say, wait a minute, I have that page in the chart, too. And you're showing us an edited version. The original one does say they had intermittent abdominal pain. So, you know, the, the primary care provider had blown up a falsified page of the chart and tried to show it to the jury. And basically, as soon as that lawyer called him out, you know, the, the defendant's lawyer, the physician's lawyer said, let's just end the trial now and talk about a settlement. And that's what they did. Yep. Rachel, we're coming toward the end of our time here. Uh, you are a, uh, a wealth of information on these. It sounds like you have some, you have in the past systematically gone out looking for these things because uh, you just, uh, I see you looking at your laptop and it looks like you have case after case after case. And um, so I think that we'd like to come back and uh, next time or the time thereafter and, and get a few more cases from you, if you could, 
And Greg, you're always welcome to join us. And Greg, uh, Henry, you as well. It's, <laughs> it's time for a wine of the month. You got it, any wines for us? This, I do. This month? I do. Um, one of the things that I, I like to do is go back, retest tasting some of those that I presented earlier on. And if we've been doing this now for, what, 15 years, so we've got uh, plenty of them. Uh, and I want to alert you to one, a French wine, uh, which is not expensive. It is a Chateau de Moulin Rouge. Uh, Meditoc, and this is uh, 2009. Now, I have put these uh, bottles away over the last several years, pulled one out the other night for dinner. This is a wine which would probably, when we initially bought this, have cost us about 15 or 18 bucks a bottle. It is fantastic. So if you can get a hold of Chateau de Moulin Rouge, uh, which is, uh, this is the 2009, uh, which we are now drinking. It is just terrific. Thanks. Greg, that's an 11 year old wine. I don't know if you're going to be able to get this at Costco. <laughs> it, it, Rick, let me just say, uh, I still do not have any, any reds with screw tops in my cellar. And uh, the day I do, I got to get out of this business. Hey, listen, if Costco doesn't sell it, I don't want it. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> Rachel, thanks so much. Um, yeah, thank you, guys. And Greg Moore as well. Thank you for, uh, actually, thank you for introducing us to Rachel. Um, I, I just feel like she's amazing. And I was, you know, excited to link you all together. Okay, we're going to sign off now. We uh, appreciate your listening. Uh, we always welcome your comments, questions, disagreements, uh, and otherwise we'll talk with you next month. Bye for now.